going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. Happy Monday. Hope your weekend was spectacular. There's a lot to get to. Right off the bat, former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall will join us uh, in about four minutes' time to talk. He's actually at the... uh, at the Petroleum Club this evening to talk about some of the issues facing Canada's energy industry. And I wanted to chat with him a little bit about what he perceives as being the big issues, especially here in Canada and here in Alberta. So we'll chat with former Premier Wall about that. Franco Savoya will also join us a little bit later on after 4 o'clock from Vibrant Communities Calgary. The federal government announcing today a new bill to combat poverty in Canada. $1.25 billion over the next nine years, helping six large cities qualify for funding. And Franco's going to weigh in on some of the issues that he sees uh, here in Calgary firsthand. And coming up after 5 o'clock, one of the things that I want to do, and I've said this from the onset as we kind of meandered our way through the processes and the politics surrounding the Calgary 2026 potential bid is I want to go deep into different aspects of the bid. And one of those aspects is infrastructure. What do we need? What do we have? What do we have to improve in order to make the games great if we do in fact decide to vote next week in favor of them do we need new buildings do we need to just refurbish them so we're going to get uh the very latest on that front and in particular the one question i had was when it came to the athletes villages and a lot of talk has been when it comes to those villages they will become affordable housing down the line well there's been some questions as to where they'll be and how many spaces will be available and who's going to be footing the bill for that and all the kind and I know the answer is going to be invariably the taxpayer but to learn a little bit more about that the infrastructure guru for the bidco is a gentleman by the name of Fergal Duff he'll join us after five o'clock to dive into what's on board when it comes to the saddle dome what's on board when it comes to McMahon are there renos planned there the short answer is going to be yes. Is Edmonton or Whistler still in play? We'll get all the very latest on the infrastructure only aspect of this so that you have a clear image in your head as to what's coming down the pipe come the vote next week. But before we get to all that, it is no surprise that everybody is talking about the Canadian price of oil compared to the WTI. It's also no shock to anybody that we've been talking a lot about politics when it comes to the oil and gas industry. It's going to be a couple of topics up for discussion tonight at the Petroleum Club as former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall will be speaking at an engagement there. And he joins us on the program right now. Uh, Mr. Wall, thank you again so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about, first off, you're speaking tonight at an event surrounding the the challenges that are facing Canada's uh, oil and gas industry and and what we need to do. Let's start with the domestic side. And what do you see as being maybe the the big three items that are standing in the way? 
Well, a couple of things. I think you have both provincial and federal policies that impact our sector. Uh, you know, the Fraser Institute does an annual assessment of which jurisdictions, both national uh, and subnational, or provinces and states, which are the best jurisdictions in which to uh, uh, in which to invest. Uh, and you know, Canada doesn't do very well as a uh, as a national organization. And this is now not a Fraser Institute ranking, but of all the of of uh, of 36 OECD countries, Canada ranks 34th in terms of having a very high regulatory burden. And then you layer on top of that provincial regulatory regimes. We worked hard in our, in my time in government and the government, they're still working hard to make sure we are protecting the environment, but we are also being competitive in terms of our regulatory environment to attract investment. And I think in the last uh, international survey, Saskatchewan was was number five. I think Newfoundland and Labrador actually was number four, but the province, this, the province that uh, we're having a, a visit in right now and that I'll be in tonight, Alberta, oil uh, producer and exporter of all the provinces, has dropped considerably uh, from a regulatory standpoint. So there's that element to it. Um, there's, that's, a, that's the regulatory impact of the production, the exploration of production. Then there's the challenge of transportation, of getting our product to market. The regulatory regime, the approval process now required for pipeline construction. I mean, somehow we have this recent decision by the federal government to go full Venezuela, as it were, and nationalize what isn't a new pipeline, but just an expansion of an existing pipeline is somehow portrayed as a watermark, uh, an indicator of the federal government's support for oil and gas. It also... Uh, it also conveniently forgets that notion, forgets that the same federal government uh, basically killed Gateway and through new policies killed um, uh, Energy East. Uh, and they were MIA on, uh, on, tra- on the KXL, which got approved by the U.S. without much encouragement from the government. So we have on multiple, we have a lot of challenges. Uh, and of course, the, the pipeline situation is part of the reason why we're selling our oil in Western Canada at such a discount, especially the heavier crude, uh, to uh, principally to those who can refine it, and make a bunch of money. You know, it's a it's a great loss to the to the people of Alberta and Saskatchewan who actually own the oil. The royalty is paid to them through their governments, uh, and hundreds of millions, billions are left on the table over a year. Hundreds of millions every year left on the table because we sell our oil at a discount. Uh, to not just the world price, but even to West Texas. So these are challenges that are man-made uh, or person-made, I guess, is mm-hmm. probably what the prime minister would prefer these days in terms of uh, their wording. Mm-hmm. But they are, they're made of, of uh, political decisions. People have, have pointed out that we've lost billions of dollars in, in the in energy sector investment. It hasn't left the energy sector. It left our country for the energy sector of other countries, a lot of it in the Permian play in, in, the, in the United States, but all over the world. So we're not competitive. We have the third greatest reserves in the planet, of oil reserves in the planet, but we don't act like it. Uh, and uh, our governments really need to, to start acting like it so we can take it full advantage, uh, responsible advantage of this great resource. Is there something to be said, I guess, in the sense of even you know five, six, seven years ago, the industry seemed to be having a problem with, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, it was the transparency aspect. And whenever there was a spill, it was always... Uh, the the industry kind of took a step back, and then all of a sudden they got they they became very pro uh, proactive, I guess in 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 a sense. And now they they seem to be they seemed to be winning the battle, and now all of a sudden 
they're they're losing the battle thanks to government. Is is that a fair assessment of how the this is all kind of trickled down? I think it's it's reasonable, but if the industry was ever flat footed in terms of response to to spills years ago, it was a pro, it was that was the case all over the globe, right? Mm-hmm. There's been rightfully so a greater awareness and a demand from the public and from regulators, governments, that pipeline companies and oil companies, and that they, every part of the every part of the stream of the system become very sensitive and proactive, as you say, but also very fast to respond to any issues. Yeah. Uh, that's happened all over the world, and yet it's been Canadian oil that's been really targeted by uh, a lot of these NGOs. Why is it? Why uh, a lot is of that? Environmental groups, even though this has been the case, what we've been doing in Canada is certainly not any less from a responsibility standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, than any other place. Arguably, we've been more responsible from an environmental perspective mm-hmm. than almost any other country with with whom we compete. But it's an e- we're easy pickings here because we Canadians are. Uh, pretty welcoming and we have the rule of law and we have the rights that uh, we uh, we treasure and are grateful for especially at this time of year coming up on remembrance day the freedom of association the freedom of communication uh, uh, obviously the freedom of the press and so um, it makes it easier i think for these uh, organizations to target canadian um, the canadian energy sector and we've seen it uh, here in a big way you know for example mm-hmm. the the groups that are targeting any pipeline that's been proposed in our country in the last little while, some of them are have sister organizations or uh, fraternal organizations in the United States. Some of them, it looks like, are funded by U.S. sources. Why aren't they protesting uh, Midwest sun- Sunset, the, uh, the the North California oil plate? Very, very dirty oil from a, ca- a carbon footprint standpoint. Not a word about that particular play. It's Canadian plays because I think these groups have decided we can win here. We can uh, we can make the governments blink at the provincial and federal level, uh, and we can shut down pipelines. Uh, and so I hope we we have learned that lesson. How frustrating is it, given that when you look at the uh, the response from the federal government in particular, and you go. They, they seem to always go back to well, the conservatives could have got or could have had the opportunity to get the Trans Mountain done as an example, but they never did. It, how frustrating is it to know that there is a government in place who claimed that they were going to do things differently, and then it d- turned out that there was nothing really done differently? Well, there were pipelines approved in those years mm-hmm. um, by that previous government. In fact, Gateway got its approval that it needed, and it was killed by the federal Liberal government. Here's here's one thing I never heard and. I mean, I'm obviously, uh, uh, this is a bit of a partisan comment, and I'm not in partisan politics anymore, but I never heard a, the former Prime Minister Harper say, even if uh, it was supposedly a slip-up, use the term phasing out of the oil sands that Prime Minister Trudeau used. Mm-hmm. I've never heard the Chief of Staff or a Principal Secretary to the previous Prime Minister say, as Mr. Butts has said on the record, that it's his view there shouldn't be a hydrocarbon industry by 2050. That's the difference. And by the way, that's not a, a partisan attack at the Liberals. That's just this version of the Liberal government under Mr. Trudeau and under Mr. Butts, his chief of staff, because the Cretchen Liberal government was very supportive of the industry. The Cretchen uh, government, the Paul Cretchen, Paul Martin government, had a serious approach to the energy sector, had a serious approach to international trade. It's this particular version that just doesn't really like what we do in the West, and it manifests itself in, uh, in the overturning of the approval for Gateway, of the federal government being MIA on the on KXL as they were, 
uh, of them introducing new uh, regulations, National Energy Board regu- regulations, midstream of the Energy East project that effectively killed it. That's that's all happened here lately, and I just think that Canadians, all of us, especially Western Canadians, need to demand more from our federal government and provincial governments who need to have a strong voice. The latest example, uh, by the way, of, of the federal government's, um, I, I'll just call it a discomfort with the energy sector, uh, is Bill C-69, uh, which is currently in the Senate. I mean, you've had the Pipeline Association of this country say if that bill's passed without amendment, it's going to there'll be no pipelines built in this country. Uh, and the firm that I do some work with when I'm in Calgary, I still live in Saskatchewan, I come in and do some work here through my business. And Osler is the law firm that I'm grateful to be a part of here. They've, they've taken the, uh, the extraordinary step of writing a submission to the House of Commons Committee on this bill, something they've never really done in recent history, because they're worried about what it'll do to the, to the climate, uh, to the investment climate. It'll be, they're worried how it will preclude pipeline approvals from happening in the future. Brad Wall is our guest. Stay on the line, sir. I've got a couple more questions for you. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Walls, our guest, he's a speaker tonight at the Petroleum Club of Canada, downtown Calgary, and talking about oil and gas and natural resources here in our country and why Alberta and Saskatchewan seem to be stonewalled. One final question for you, sir. I argued last week government jumps at opportunities to have emergency debates on climate change reports, yet doesn't seem to have any appetite to have those debates to address the industry's present or the future. How frustrating is it for someone who sees it from two different provincial perspectives? It's a huge point of frustration, uh, and you've you've sort of canvassed the uh, the dichotomy well. We're prepared to have an emergency motion on that UN report, uh, but w- literally when the commodity downturn has cost hundreds of thousands of Western Canadians their jobs, either directly or indirectly. Uh, an emergency consideration was requested that when I was premier, we came up with a plan to help uh, have the federal government support uh, uh, an abandoned well program to put some people back to work. And there was just not, there was no sense of urgency. There certainly wasn't any emergency motions put forward in the House of Commons. And I think people are tired of it. Western Canadians are pretty patient. We've had to be over these years. We Throughout this commodity price downturn, when Alberta and Saskatchewan have been really short on revenue, and more importantly, people have been either have been losing their jobs or worried about their their job security, those taxpayers have still been funding an equalization program uh, that uh, is it totals out. It's a federal program that totals at around 19 billion and 11 billion dollars of it goes to one province, Abel Province. It goes to Quebec and Ontario gets money and Manitoba gets two billion dollars. And Alberta and Saskatchewan through this time have been saying to the federal government, fair enough, that's the program, and I guess you're not going to change it. It's not going to change. But how about some recognition? How about an abandoned well initiative so we could put some people back to work? How about unequivocal support for the industry that actually bears out in terms of government policy on pipelines? And you don't see any of it. And so there's a frustration there. And again, I'm not being partisan mm-hmm. uh, because we, we saw a much more serious and supportive approach from the Cretchen Liberals. This particular version of the Liberal government, really, in my view, this is my opinion, but it's born of some slip-ups by the Prime Minister himself and what his Chief of Staff, the very powerful Mr. Butts, has said publicly. They would like the industry to go away. They don't particularly like what we do out here. 
to make living uh, to make a living to pay bills to pay equalization uh, taxes as it were uh, and so I think that is all of a great point of frustration. Should be a very interesting chat at the Calgary Petroleum Club later on this evening. Uh, former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Thanks for your time. All the best. Some interesting news out of Ottawa today. The federal Liberal Party introducing a bill to combat poverty in Canada, pledging $1.25 billion over the next nine years, where the money will be used to help six large cities qualify for Funding to help combat homelessness, to combat affordable housing, that kind of thing. Uh, Franco Savoya is the executive director of Vibrant Communities Calgary, and he joins us now on the program. Franco, welcome. You're most welcome. Delighted to be here. With the federal plan to increase mm-hmm. the amount of dollars that are heading towards sort of the the homelessness problem and the 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 issues that are surrounding affordable housing and, and that kind of thing, let's start with back here in Calgary, and, and what needs to be addressed here, I guess? Well, there's a, a number of things. Certainly housing is a very, very big item and issue. Uh, relative to affordable housing, the average across our country is about 6% of your housing stock. When you look at the city of the size of Calgary, when you look nationally, we're sitting at 3.6%. That shortfall is about 15,000 units for our city of affordable housing. So that's a huge gap. And so the fact that the both uh, the, the poverty reduction strategy that the federal government has initiated and also their, the housing strategy, we need the help for sure. And uh, can it really help us? Absolutely, because we are fairly behind the eight ball relative to what other cities, and we're just dealing with averages, but still we're severely short of the, of the average across our country. Is it enough for the feds to get involved and do blanket statements like this? And I know I was speaking with uh, with one group sure. last week saying it's not enough to go blanket statement because every area of this country has a different need, a different want, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's not enough. But what what I would, uh, from our perspective, what we would applaud is at least we now have a national strategy, meaning with some goals around reducing and helping people to lift themselves out of poverty over time. The question, I think, the challenge we all have as Canadians and as Albertans and as Calgarians is, will we align with the strategy? And what that really means is to say there's lots of great work happening in Calgary. There's lots of great work happening in Alberta. And there is work being done in lots of other jurisdictions across our, our country. But we're not very much aligned. Everybody does their own thing. We all have our kind of uniquenesses. And I think what this demands is that we do have to say, for us as a province and as a city, let's align with that strategy for a period of time and let's see, you know, do really align with what's happening. Let's take housing. I mean, what are we doing provincially with housing? And let's make sure that we optimize what both federally and provincially we're doing. And I know this is at a high level. And it, it, mm-hmm. like the, for the folks that are struggling every single day on our streets and struggling to stay housed, struggling to meet all their basic needs, their need is immediate and it's it's urgent and it's right now. I mean, this is trying to take a much more uh, longer term, but we all have to kind of roll in the same direction. And that's and that where I'm seeing someone involved in this, Joe, is that I think at least we have something we have a direction we have a bit of a lighthouse across the lake the question would be is or across whatever can we kind of 
try to go to the same direction uh, rather than everybody kind of going their own way. And I think that's the opportunity we have here. Uh, and I'm, what I'm urging all of us, including ourselves here in our own little shop, is to say, let's see what we can do to align with those goals and then push like the living bejeebers legislation-wise and everything else to put the kind of resources in place, dollars and whatever else we need to do in a specific way. What do you see as maybe being the logical first step, I guess, towards easing the strain on those who are either in the the demographic of the working poor who can't get, you know, enough of a job or enough to even get a down payment to afford, you know, that that apartment or even those who are on the brink of and they're living paycheck to paycheck. What's the logical first step here in Calgary to kind of ease that strain? Well, I think whatever we can do uh, to increase the amount of housing would be affordable housing would be a big deal. Uh, and so, I mean, there are, we're all doing some little things, but the question would be, let's get our planning done. And as the province and the federal government get their act together on housing, then we can build uh, like and, and develop some more units for housing. So that would be a, a pretty uh, a pretty big uh, step, I think, because housing is such a big cost um, for people. I mean, in some cases, honestly, for the for the folks you and I are now talking about, uh, who are the working poor. I mean, you're earning fifteen, sixteen dollars an hour, which is substantially less than a living wage. Honestly, they are paying sixty to seventy percent of their income for housing. Like, if you think about what, how the heck are they, are they supposed to? So we got to bring that back into check. That they should be spending thirty to thirty-five percent of their income for housing. It'll be interesting to see how things uh, go moving forward, Franco. Thank you so much for the time today. You're most welcome, Joe. Delighted to be here. Thank you for your interest. In an effort to get you wrapping your heads around the different aspects of the 2026 Olympic Games bid and the upcoming plebiscite, I wanted to break the decision down by the different aspects. So whether it's taxes or whether it's security or politics or whatever the case may be, I wanted to give context to all the different sides of it. And today we're going to focus solely on infrastructure and the director of capital infrastructure for Calgary 2026 is Fergal Duff. Uh, Fergal, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about uh, the capital infrastructure plan. There are a ton of questions, uh, to needless to say, heading into next week's plebiscite. And I want to start with new facilities in particular. We're looking at a mid-sized arena, a couple of ice surfaces, and a field house. Can you speak to the cost, where they'll go, uh, and sort of the, the nitty-gritty on those two projects in particular? Uh, sure. Uh, well, you're correct. We have uh, two new venues currently in our hosting plan. Uh they are both currently located in the Foothills Athletic Park, so adjacent to McMahon Stadium. Uh, the first of the two venues is a field house or a multi-sport complex, as we described it to our European friends. Um, and essentially, that's uh, going to be a legacy a re- uh, facility for uh, the sport of uh, summer sports so that uh, uh, the community can use it year-round for, for training and so on. Um, temporarily, we will install an ice sheet into the field house, and uh, that will be uh, one of our, our main venues uh, during the Olympic and Paralympic Games. 
uh, with a capacity of about 10,000 people. Um, the other new venue will be a mid-size arena. Uh, that'll be a 5,000 to 6,000 seater facility, uh, which will also be used uh, during both games. Is there a, does that change at all? And if, say, for example, the, the Flames in the city come together and, and reach an agreement to build a, a new NHL rink, does that kind of change plans at all for you guys if, if that comes to fruition? Well, um, we, would, we would certainly like to accommodate or incorporate a new uh, NHL arena into our plans if those, if those uh, people can come to an agreement on that. Um, whether or not we would consider, you know, incorporating uh, a mid-size arena with an NHL uh, arena is still open to debate and discussion. Um, and we have some flexibility in terms of, you know, potentially moving that to from one space to another. Right. Speaking of hockey rinks, the Saddle Dome is in the plans as it stands right now. What kind of renovations are we talking about, if any at all? Yeah, we, we do uh, we do have the Saddle Dome in our plans currently. Uh, it, it's currently the venue for our main hockey events uh, during the Olympic Games. Um, but obviously, if we had a newer arena in town, we would probably uh, move that th- those events into the new arena. But we would still use the Saddle Dome certainly um, during the games. Um, our current capital plan includes uh, enhancing accessibility to the venue. Uh, and improving spectator services. It would uh, look at extending the life of the ice plant, and then it's basically just uh, some structural and mechanical upgrades. Does that change any of the plans surrounding curling, or is that a sport that's still up in the air? Where would that be held? Curling, we have lots of options. Uh, In fact, uh, we're we're still in in negotiations with a number of different existing facilities in the region that could uh, easily host uh, that event, uh, but obviously, if we had another uh, arena in Calgary uh, by 2026, we would be able to have uh, curling within within the city as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could, we have the the ability to move things around a little bit if we want to. Anything else when it comes to renovations for some of the the facilities? I'll use the Oval as an example, but even uh, COP Windsport that area. Anything that you foresee as being part of the the budget going forward? Oh yeah, we, we've got a we've got a capital budget essentially for every one of the venues that we'll be uh, using during the games. Uh, our our renewal budget is actually exceeds our budget for uh, new venues. So the the two new venues will be about um, four hundred and thirty million dollars in total, uh, while our renewal budget is about five hundred and thirty million. Um, and and that's that's across the board. So you mentioned the oval that will certainly be. Uh, looked at where we're looking at revitalizing some of the systems, mechanical systems in there, uh, replacing the uh, the slab under the ice sheet, um, and I think uh, this week we'll hopefully be providing some insight into some of the work that we have uh, scheduled for McMahon Stadium. Um, it's it's really representative of kind of the the impact that we're going to have on, on our existing venues, and we're going to be releasing some images of, of what the renewed McMahon Stadium might look like. Is the plan to have opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies at McMahon if, if the bid does go through? That's correct, yeah. Um, and uh, our our upgrade plan for that facility uh, is also about improving accessibility. 
Um, we're putting in a new entry plaza, some team zones, and uh, we're improving uh, some permanent seating areas and the concession areas. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, we will be providing some uh, temporary additional seating in the stadium as well for, for um, the large numbers of people that we're expecting to attend the ceremonies. Fergal Duff is our guest. He's Director of Capital Infrastructure with Calgary 2026. I have a few more questions for you, Fergal, if you can hang on the line for a second, including about the Athletes' Village. I want to get to that in a second. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Fergal Duff is our guest. He's the Director of Capital Infrastructure with Calgary 2026. As we've honed in solely on infrastructure when it comes to this bid, as you prepare, uh, prepare yourself to go to the poll in about a week and one day's time to bid or decide whether you want to go ahead with the 2026 Olympic and Paralympic bid. Fergal, I wanted to get into the discussion around Athletes Village, and I know there's been a lot of talk about where it's going. Could it be here? Could it be there? How many uh, possible low or middle income housing could go there? That kind of thing. What is the latest on that front? Yeah, our strategy for the Athletes Village is still the same in terms of the overall numbers. Uh, So we still have to accommodate about 3,100 athletes and officials during the Olympics. It'll be a little bit less intensively used during the Paralympics. Uh, But after the Games, uh, the the plan is that it will still be converted into around about 710 uh, units with a mix of market, attainable and affordable housing, including within that. I know there's been a lot of talk as well about Edmonton and Whistler, whether they could play a part in, in uh, in the bid itself. What is the status in terms of whether or not those two communities might be playing a part? We're not currently looking at Edmonton as uh, as hosting any of the events right now. Um, We are definitely uh, including Whistler in our plans. Uh, Whistler has uh, some recently constructed facilities in the uh, the Callahan Valley there. Uh, We'll be hosting uh, ski jumping and Nordic combined in, in, uh, in Whistler. And Canmore would also be a pretty big part of, of this bid as well. Oh, for sure. Canmore is a huge part of the bid. Uh, they've been a, a partner in the process all the way along. Um, so the, the Nordic Centre in Canmore will host biathlon and cross-country skiing. Um, but we'll also be using uh, Nikiska for, for all of our alpine events. Uh, Canmore will also have an athlete's village. We'll have uh, capacity to accommodate about 1,200 athletes and officials up there, and the plan for that village is that that will also be converted into perpetually affordable housing after the Games. Uh, There's about 240 units there. Um, And Canmore will also be sort of the main host for the Paralympic Games, which is pretty exciting for the town. Uh, We're moving our uh, medals ceremonies from the grandstand uh, in Stampede Cluster, uh, which will be used during the Olympics, up to Canmore. So uh, the uh, townspeople there will be able to enjoy uh, spectating the, the medal ceremonies during the Paralympics. Final question for you. When looking at some of the other projects, and I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, whether or not we can get uh, train out to the airport and, and some of these other bigger infrastructure projects, can you explain why they may or may not be on the, the preliminary uh, Olympic budget list right now or if in the future they would become part of the, the infrastructure list? Yeah, I mean, we 
I personally have been involved in a number of uh, public engagement events, and, and I do get this question quite a lot from, from the public. Uh, people have been asking about, you know, the sea train uh, up to the airport. Uh, they've been talking about the, the, the Flames Arena, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, don't need, uh, we don't need a new Flames Arena, and we don't need uh, a sea train extension to the airport in order to host the games. I think, you know, there, there may be... Uh, there may be future talks amongst our government partners about, you know, whether those things are, are feasible or not. But but right now, it's not part of our of our hosting plan. Understood, uh, Mr. Duff. Thank you so much for the time and and uh, some clarification on some of the points that uh, have been brought up over the course of the discuss- the discussion over the last few weeks. No problem. Uh, thanks thanks for giving me the opportunity to hopefully pass on some facts and, and information. Fergal Duff is the Director of Capital Infrastructure with Calgary 2026 again. Through the course of the week, this week, I want to get real focused in on some of the hot-button issues that surround this bid. And in the coming days, security is going to be a big one. And also taxes. We're going to try to whittle down what the tax impact might be on you should we go ahead with the 2026 bid. We'll continue the discussion and much more. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.